firstly, I will really would like to thank Cherry, my cousin, my mother's first cousin, who is really like an aunt to me. Um, Cherry, by her initiative, um, asked me to give the shiur and as it happens it happened to be that exactly that day I was thinking anyway of giving a shiur about the situation so it works beautifully. Cherry lived for many 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 years in Italy and is very close uh, part of the Italian community and she really felt that she wanted to dedicate, wanted to dedicate a shiur um, for the people in Italy and I know there's plenty of Italians that are with us here today um, for those that are, have unfortunately lost loved ones and for those whose loved ones are very ill at the moment and for everybody all of us all around the world people who know people who have been suffering with this terrible terrible um, disease virus we wish everyone and pray that this year will be Louis Nishmat, all of those precious souls that we've lost through this virus and this disease and that please God please God we as humanity we're able to fight whatever we however and whatever we need to fight as the coming weeks um, ahead of us. Okay, so again, thank you to Cherry and thank you to Oshra and Matan Sharon for facilitating and for helping us to facilitate this event. And thank you to Matanya Rishalayim for setting up all the technical side of it. Um, really much, much gratitude to all of you. Okay, so what I want to discuss tonight, and those of you, I see there's quite a few of my ladies who come to my shiurim. I apologize if there's ideas here that you've heard before. Um, I haven't had a second with four kids at home to prepare something brand new. Um, but I hope in any case, even those of you that have heard a couple of these ideas, it will be refreshing and tying into, certainly tying into Pesach and um, some new things there as well. Um, one of the major things that I teach when I look at Sefer Bereshit, and generally when I'm teaching Torah, and I've been teaching this for many, many years, is the notion of uncertainty. The idea that we live as humanity, we live, constantly searching part of human nature is our search to certainty search towards certainty if we look at the development of his in history of humanity both on a sociological level and on a philosophical level what we see is that man generally and if you if we had time we could develop it and i could show it to you bit by bit through history but man as a whole one of the major things that determines his quest is his search for knowledge and his search for certainty his or her search for knowledge and search for certainty all of us as individuals if we think about ourselves one of the things we want to be reassured about one of the things we try to reassure ourselves about is that we have a certain element of certainty in our lives. We want to know what tomorrow is going to bring. We want to know that we are going to be able to provide food and, and comforts for our family. We want to know that our health is hopefully going to be in a good way. We want to be able to have access to the best medicine if we fall ill. There's a part of all of us as human beings that search for certainty. That is a very natural human need. Another natural human need is knowledge. If we look again at humanity, how they develop, what we see, how humanity develops, what we see is that man is constantly trying to search for knowledge. And that can come in many different forms. Certainly in the ancient world that came through the form of religion. It often came through superstition. If I do this, then this will be. Okay, that's very much what superstition is. When we didn't necessarily have medical knowledge, we tried all other different kinds of things in order to cure diseases. That is very much where humanity lies. And Rav Soloveitchik beautifully describes Adam um, Adam's creation in this way. He says that man, if we look at the two stories of creation, we have Adam 1 and Adam 2. We have Adam 1 in chapter 1 of Sefer Bereshit, and we have Adam 2 in chapter 2 of Sefer Bereshit. And what we see between these stories is a dialectical swing between two different Adams. Now, very interestingly, in more recent times, the Bible critics said that these two, because chapter one and chapter two of the first, uh, first two chapters of Genesis seem to contradict each other, many different reasons. They argued that it was written by two different authors. And Russell H. his infamous book, The Lonely Man of Faith, beautifully describes and almost with a, with a 
the slap of the hand says, this isn't Bible critics, you know, Bible critics have got it wrong. What's going on here is the idea that we, in ourselves, in each human being, there are two personality traits. There are two types of human being. There is the Adam one human being and there is the Adam two human being. What did Ralph Soloveitchik mean by this? So if we look at the text, and again, we don't have time to get into it. I'm just going to, uh, you know, standing on one foot, try and describe it. Adam one is created the Selim Elohim. He's created in the image of God. He is God commands him to go out and conquer the world. He is told to rule over it. He creates what Rav Soloveitchik describes as a majestic community. He looks to the other as a means to an end. He looks to the other as a way to be dignified, to find, he's the scientist. He wants to find cures to the diseases. He wants to rule and control the world. He wants to know what's going to be tomorrow. He wants to create certainty in his existence he asks the how question how does the world work and his search is for an answer his search is for a dignified existence he wants to control and he wants to dominate that's adam one that is today that is mankind today that's the high-tech industry that's the medical scientists those are the people who want to make our lives dignified they want to make us exist in a world whereby we are majestic and man has achieved many things that adam one has set out to do but there is another side to our humanity argues rav soloveitchik and that's found in chapter two of sefer Bereshit. that is Adam 2. And Adam 2 represents something far more profound in the sense of an existential search. His search is not for the how. He doesn't ask how something works. He asks the why question. If Adam 1 is the scientist, Adam 2 is the philosopher. Adam 2 asks why. Why is the way the world the way it is? And in many ways, Adam 2 isn't even looking for an answer. The cathartic process of asking the question in some senses is the answer itself. That is part and parcel of who he is. And Adam too, he is the man whose life is riddled with doubts and crises. He is staring an incurable disease in the face and he's not asking how do we cure the disease? He's asking, what does this mean? Why am I in this existence? That is Adam 2. Adam 1 is majestic. Adam 2 is covenantal. Says Rav Soloveitchik, Adam 2 creates not a majestic community, but a covenantal community. Adam 2 creates a community where he sees, he searches, he says to God, he looks for someone. He's lonely. He's looking for an Ezekinegdor, for a helpmate. And he asks God, and he tries, and he names the animals, and he can't find one. And then ultimately, at the end, he finds woman. A woman is created, and he has to sacrifice something in order to create the covenantal community. And that covenantal community doesn't necessarily, necessarily alleviate his existential loneliness, but it allows him to find some kinds of cathartic redemption in his relationship with the other, not as a means to an end, not in order to create a dignified community and find the answer to the why question, but in order to fill the existential loneliness that he experiences. That's a covenantal community where the other is seen as a means to, the, to an end. And here I brought you Rav Soloveitchik in his own words in source number one. Again, for those that have joined, just to let you know, there's a source sheet that's attached in the chat. If you go to the chat, there's a PDF source sheet that you can download and look on your computer or print out. Source number one, Adam the second is like Adam the first, also intrigued by the cosmos. Intellectual curiosity drives them both to confront courageously the mysterious magnum of being. However, while the cosmos provokes Adam I to quest for power and control, thus making him ask the functional how question, 
Adam two, Adam the second, responds to the call of the cosmos by engaging in a different kind of cognitive gesture. He does not ask a single functional question. Instead, his inquiry is of a metaphys metaphysical nature and a threefold one. He wants to know why is it, what is it, who is it? I'm just, uh, I'm just um, trying to, someone share their screen by mistake. Can everyone else see that? Or is it just me? Tanya, yes, somebody has shared it. We all see it. It's uh, it's Rachel Ben David, Rochelle Ben David. Zena, mute your mute your thing because it's coming up with you instead of Tanya. Has everyone else still got it? Okay, mine is mine is back to how it was. Hello. Yeah, it's fine, Tanya. Now it's fine. All good. Hello. Can everyone hear me? Can everyone hear me? Put your thumbs up. Yes, can hear you. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna leave Rob Soloveitchik for the minute. I'm going to come back to him um, when we get to majestic community. What I want, what I'm, I'm going to explain it in my own words instead of reading it from the text for the minute. Rav Soloveitchik talks about, as I said, Adam 1 and Adam 2. And the reason why this is important for us is because we have to understand that man is a very complex being. And Rav Soloveitchik explains this to us. He tells us that man is made up of different parts. We have an Adam 1 part, and that's the part which searches for certainty and searches for the need to know. We need to know, we need to, and we need to possess, and we need to control our given reality. That's part of being Adam one. But Adam two is a part of us that also has to learn that to be a human being means that often we exist in an existential place of humility, where we create it. Don't forget, Adam two is created from the dust of the earth. You've all frozen. Uh. I can still hear you. Oh, one second. Can Tanya. everyone still hear me? Okay. Yes. Hi, it's Benji. Essie's on the phone with me. Um, I was told you have a problem. I can't, I can't hear everyone. Tanya, yeah, you hear me? We, we can hear you. Tanya, we can hear you. You haven't, we haven't stopped hearing you. It's fine. Tanya, just carry on talking because we can hear you. I think Tanya's uh, frozen. Tanya, are you there? Yeah. 
you that's why can you hear me now can you hear me now yes can you hear yes, me? yes okay yes okay okay I'm, I'm really hoping this isn't going to be more troublesome i hope from now on it's going to be halak okay i apologize okay i'm back you can all hear me I'm gonna I'm gonna leave reading Rav Soloveitchik. I've explained to you what he says, and I want to just reiterate, Rav Soloveitchik's message is that Adam is composed of two different elements. The, the element part one of Adam is that he wants to control his destiny. He wants to control his reality. He wants to understand and possess everything in within his reach. Adam too is much more existential. He's humble. He understands that his reality is a given and that that's what he has to deal with. And sometimes that leads to existential angst. Sometimes that leads to a point very often for Adam too, where he realizes because he's created from the dust of the earth, that he is nothing within the cosmos of being. And that feeling of nothingness is what informs, I think I've, what informs his, um, that feeling of nothingness is what informs his very deep feelings of loneliness, of existential loneliness. Mm -hmm. I want to look at the beginning of Sefer Breshit, where we find Abdam and Chava in Gan Eden. And in that story, we have a fascinating narrative. That narrative, to me, is the beginning of the Torah's response, the beginning of the Torah's response to the question of certainty and uncertainty. How do we as human beings exist in a world where not everything is certain? How do we exist in a world where, where we know, just hold on everyone one second. Um, can everyone please put on mute because I've lost the, um, I'm not able to mute you. Everyone please put on mute. I've lost the host, host's abilities. So if there's some noise in the background, if people just make sure they've muted their computer, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. How do we know that we are, um, how do we cope with this uncertainty? As I said, we are living today in an unprecedented age. And one of the things that's happened in this period, in this very short period in which we've been living this almost nightmare existence, is that we have been forced to grapple exactly with these themes that I've been teaching about for many years in Sefer Breshit. Themes of certainty and uncertainty, of living, of addressing our vulnerability, of having to shift the paradigm, of taking our reality, of knowing on the one hand we're Adam one, that we're constantly striving and we're constantly creating and we're constantly trying to enhance our existence and our dignity. And on the other hand, and our knowledge and our certainty. And on the other hand, there's a part of us that comes face to face with the vulnerability of our existence. And that deepens our feelings of vulnerability. It deepens our feelings of existential loneliness. And it deepens very much our feelings of humility, of the ability to turn around and say, I am limited. And perhaps for modern man, we've forgotten Adam too. Modern man is very much Adam one. We've forgotten what it is to be. Adam too. I want to look now at the story of Sefer, at the beginning of Sefer Bereshit and the story of Gun Eden. And I'd like you all to look at source number two on your sheets. Because here I really see it's a very complex story. And again, it would take an hour for us to explicate every element of the text, which we just don't have time to do right now. But there's one or two main messages that I want us to take out from here. If you look at source number two, it's the story of Gan Eden, Adam and Chava in Gan Eden. And the Nachash comes, the, the Nachash comes to, to, to um, Chava and he creates a doubt in her mind. He turns around to her and he says to her, you know, God told you not to eat from every tree, right? And then in Pasuk, 
גימל, סורי, עם פסוק דלת, ויום ההנחה של האישה, לא תמותון. She turns around and says, well, God sets me that if I eat from the tree, I'm going to die. And then Ahash turns around and he creates a chashash. He creates a doubt. He questions her way of perceiving reality, her way of seeing her given reality. And he says, Ki yodeh elokim, ki bayom achachem imeno v'nefkohuen nechem, v'hayitem ke'elokim yodeh tovara. He turns around and he says, God's playing a game with you. He doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he knows that if you eat, then you will have certain knowledge of everything like God does. Then you will have absolute knowledge. And if you have absolute knowledge, you will turn into God himself. And therefore, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree. And the woman saw, Ki tov ha'etz l'ma'cha, v'chitaiva hilenayim, v'nechmad ha'etz l'haskil. She saw that it was desirous, and she saw that it was good for enlightenment, l'haskil, literally knowledge to enlighten herself. T'ikach mipriyov v'tochal, v'titeng v'am li'isha ima v'yachal. And what does she do? She eats it. And the biggest question is why? Why? Why does she eat it? And the answer from the Pshat is very simple. She eats it because she wants to be exactly what the Nachash tells her, to be like God knowing good and evil. We all, and as I said at the beginning, humanity, we look at humanity, the development of humanity, and especially coming from philosophical background, the development of philosophy and human knowledge as a whole has always been on the trajectory of wanting to know where does knowledge come from there's a whole um there's a whole school in philosophy called epistemology epistemology is the study of knowing of where does knowledge come from this is the beginning of humanity god has given us a gift we are gifted in the sense that we are cognitive beings we are able to know we are able to learn we are able to come enlightened that's who we are but we're also human beings and not God. And that is the key here. And then we continue the whole, whole dialogue between man and, and God and God hides and, and sorry, God comes and speaks to man and says, what have you done? Done and man refuses to take responsibility and hides. And, and again, here we have the whole idea of the clothing of the skin is the beginning of the pnimiyut, is the beginning of this dissonance between the inner and the outer self a dissonance that we as human beings have and it comes from this moment when all of a sudden Adam and Chava realize they have an inner self and uh, um, and an outer self an external and an internal that's the moment they eat from the tree but what I and I don't want to focus on that right now because it's it's not the it's not where I want to center our our um our eyes to. I want us to look specifically, and again, I think it's such, it's often missed, but such an important part of the text. And that is what I call the first moment of tshuva, the first moment of repentance. And this repentance is done by Adam. And it's something so profound and also so subtle that it's often missed. But to me, it is the beginning of our ability as human beings to live in a new reality. What's the new reality? The new reality is they're no longer going to be in Gan Eden. They're no longer going to be in a world where everything is clear. They're no longer going to live in a world where everything is open and clear and there's no dissonances and there's no inability to see or not see. They're going to begin to live in a world where things are far more complex than they seem. But more than that, they're going to live in a world where they are going to suffer, where they are going to go out and they are going to have to live with process. They are going to have to live through process. Nothing is going to be given to them on a golden platter. They are going to have to search and they're going to have to live with dissonance. And God turns around and he says, and here I want to read from the Sukim. He turns around and he lays out their new reality. If you look at Pasuk, um, if you look at Pasuk, uh, Pasuk Tetzayim, 
El ha'isha amal. To the woman, he said, okay, great, troublesome, and, and painful is going to be your, your pregnancy and raising children till Divanim. You're going to give birth children to Elishecha, to Chukatecha, Vahuyim Shalbach, and you're going to be subordinate to your husband. Because you listened to the voice of your wife. Because you listen to your wife and you did what you were meant to do, the ground is going to be cursed. And you're going to have to, through troublesome work and suffering, you're going to work the ground. And, and, and you're going to have all these things are going to grow that you're going to have to try and get rid of. You're going to eat the grass of the field. And through the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat bread. And if that's not bad enough, after all of that, which I'm now sending you out from the paradise that you had, everything was given to you. You didn't have to work. You didn't have to do anything. I'm sending you out from that. And, if, and, and, and you're going to have to work the ground. And by the way, what's fascinating here comes in the whole idea of process, the whole idea of hidden and unhidden. Okay, that everything's clear, the total clarity. Now there's things that are hidden and unhidden. Okay, we have the beautiful midrash of truth being thrown down to the ground and growing from the earth. There's a hidden part of reality and a non-hidden, and we don't always know what's true and what isn't. All of the imagery is here. But more than just that, here is also the imagery of, the, of man and woman suffering. There is a suffering element to our reality. And the suffering comes, and this is what's amazing, it comes from that which is unknown. The woman doesn't know what's going on inside her when she's pregnant. Perhaps probably one of the most uncertain periods when we bring up children is that period of when we don't, we can't see the child, even in, with today's technology, and it's very uncertain. The man doesn't know for certain if his props are gonna grow, they're under the ground, are they gonna come, are they not gonna come? Laden in all of the imagery of of this of this narrative is this notion again, which is kind of overriding everything of the certain and the uncertain, the known and the not known. And if that wasn't bad enough, after that whole description that God gives Hadam and Chava, he ends it by saying, From the dust you're taken to the dust, you're going to return. Meaning what? Meaning. Your reality, your, your existence is nothingness. There can't be anything more depressing than hearing that, having, after the, having been in Gan Eden. But what is Adam's response? Now, if I was Adam and having heard, just, heard God tell me all of those things, what would I do? I'd go into my bed, cover myself with the duvet and go back to sleep, which is what most of us want to do every morning at the moment when we wake up. Like that feeling of, is it real? Every morning. Has this really happened to the world, right? It's that feeling of maybe if I just hibernate, which I guess we're all doing to an extent, for the next five months when I wake up, it will all be over. That's the feeling that Adam has when God gives him this, I imagine, right? And instead, he does something which I think is so powerful and so profound. And to, in my mind, it's so overseen, this pasuk, but it's perhaps one of the most powerful pasukim for us today, and certainly, I think it's the first time we see, it is the first time we see mankind do tshuva, because what does Adam do? He looks at his given reality, and he says, yeah, this is rather depressing. But what he does is he reframes it. He turns around and he says, okay, it's true that what you just outlined is really depressing. And it's true that we now live in a reality that we don't know everything. And it's true that we now see that we don't see. And yet, I'm choosing to see my reality differently. Because what am I choosing to see? I'm choosing to see my wife, not as a means to an end, but to see the potential that she has. And I'm choosing to see life. He names his wife. He endows her with dignity. And he says, Ki hi hayita em She is the mother of all living things. He takes what he's been given and he says, okay, 
But you know what you just told me? You just told me that we're going to have children. You just told me that we're going to bring life into the world. That we have the potential to bring life into the world. And I am now taking my reality and I'm going to see it as a positive thing. I'm going to frame it in a positive way. I'm going to understand that this is the reality I'm now faced with. And I'm going to try as much as possible to choose life. Because that is what is my only way of doing it. If not, again, I'll bury myself already now. And that's what he chooses to do. And I think there's something profound in this. A, and again, it's already almost as if, and by the way, what's God's response? What's Hashem's response? Which to me, is, it gives me, every time I read it, it gives me chills because I think it's so powerful. Man's response to God's curse is to choose life. And God's response to Adam's choice, the Yas Hashem Elohim la'adzam ishto he takes for them, he makes for them a garment of skin with an iron. But in some, there's a, there's a few ways of reading. Iron, Vavresh, can also be read, Aleph and Ayn are interchangeable, and it can also be read as all, as light. And I'd like to read it in both ways, because skin is our protection, right? When we're feeling down or we're not doing so well, our protection is to be able to go out into the world and to put sometimes a mask on our face. That's our protection, okay, to be able to do that. But our protection that God also gives us is light. The ability, even when our reality isn't what we want it to be, to be a light to ourselves and to be a light to others. That's what we have. We may not always have the choice of our given reality, but we always have the choice of how to respond and how we view our given reality. And that is the first message of Adam, it's the first message of the narrative of Gun Eden. The second source I want to look at with you, and, and again, as I said, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's gonna finish by 10, those of you that are wondering, okay, it's an hour's class, but what I wanna do is I wanna build up these ideas that we can take it specifically to the women in the book of Shemot. I wanna very briefly look at another very important story, and that's the story of Cain and Hevel. And again, I want to be very brief in our looking at it, but I want to bring out only one specific message. The story of Cain and Hevel is another example, this time, where God is trying to teach a message to Cain and through that to the whole of humanity and the rest of the history of, of humanity through the story. And there, what he does is he turns around. And again, I just want to... I, I, I just want to, for a second, talk about the story of Cain and Hevel. And it's very, and, and again, just very briefly to summarize, Cain is born with a silver spoon in his mouth. In many ways, he's generation X, Y, I can't remember what generation we're up to, whatever it is, right? Generation Y. Um, and he is that generation where he's born with a silver spoon in his mouth, okay? He is, even the way that uh, that we would name whoever hasn't got their computer on mute. I'd really appreciate some them turning it off. Someone with a kid in the background. I do love kids and I love my own, but it's just a little bit disturbing. Um, those someone with a kid in the background, please turn your um computer to mute. I can't mute you, I'm afraid. Okay, um, so the uh, so Cain is born, and when he is born, Chava calls him, it's in sorcery for those that want to see it, but Hashem. I literally possess a man with God, right? And he, she continues to give birth to his son. Again, there's a question whether, whether they were twins or they were born separately. And she doesn't even name him. There's no reason given to his name. And what is Hevel? What is Hevel? Hevel is a breath, nothingness. In many ways, Kain and Hevel represent, again, these typologies that we spoke about of Adam 1 and Adam 2. But there's something profound here because Hevel goes off, he becomes the, he becomes the um, shepherd. And Kain remains next to his parents. He's really the child that takes over the family business, so to speak. He takes over and he becomes the one with the given everything. Everything's gone his way. His whole life, everything has gone his way. Okay. And all of a sudden he decides of his own initiative. I'm going to sacrifice to God. And Hevel, his brother, seems to copy him. 
And what happens when he sacrifices up to God? For some reason that we're not told, we don't know why, his sacrifice isn't, isn't, isn't accepted by God, and Hevel's is. And again, we have all the Perushim that come and try and understand why that is the case. But here, I want us to read exactly what goes on. His sacrifice is taken and his brother's isn't. And he gets very angry. And it's no surprise when you, when everything's been given to Fujishu, when you've never faced, um, when you've never faced adversity in your life, when you've never had a challenge, it's very, very difficult to know what to do with that challenge. It's very difficult to know what to do with that adversity. And he gets angry and he, and he literally says, this isn't fair. My life isn't fair. These conditions aren't fair. And in Pasuk, Zion, Hashem turns round and he says something fascinating to Kain before he kills Heather. He says to him, He says to me what I think is, again, a very, very difficult pasuk to understand. It's, it's very enigmatic, which is the reason why it's, it's interpreted in many different ways. But I want to read it on its very, very shut level. He turns around to Kain, God turns around to Kain, he says to him, in tetiv se'et, if you literally make good of this, in tetiv, if you can make good of this, se'et, you will be lifted or you will lift up. The imlotitiv, but if you can't make good of this, sin crouches at your door, and you will be drawn towards it, and you can rule over it. Now, again, who can he rules over? Who? It's very difficult to know exactly what's going on in this, these psukim, but I want, I, um, allow me, if you don't mind, to read, to read it in the way it, the, I want to read it, and specifically to read it in a way that I think is very, very meaningful, again, for us today, and especially coming up to Pesach as well. God turns around to, to Kain and gives him what I think is a message, not just for Kain, but for all of humanity, and that is, he doesn't come and explain himself. There's no explanations. By the way, generally in Torah, in Tanakh, there are, I don't even think ever God comes and 100% explains why he's done what he's doing or why he does or why evil happens in the world. There's no explanation on the divine path. But what he does is he teaches us how to respond to something that's happened. Okay? And what's he teaching Hevel here? He's turning around to Hevel and he's saying to him, I'm not going to tell you why your sacrifice wasn't taken. This is your given reality. One day, this is your given reality. But what I'm going to teach you, the tool I'm giving to you, is how to deal with that given reality. If you can make good, if you can paradigm shift, if you can reimagine your reality, if you can change the way you see your reality, you will be lifted and you will lift others and your reality will be elevated. But if you can't, sin will always be there. Anger will always be there. It will always be crouching at your door. And the only person in whose domain that um, ability to change the situation is, is you, Vata You can rule over yourself. You are the one who is in control of your reality. And again, we see that this doesn't happen and it continues the way it continues. One of the gifts that God has given us as humanity is the ability to paradigm shift. What does that mean? It means that we have the ability as human beings to take a given reality and to view it in a different way. We have ability to turn things on the whole of the current story is a story about a reality being changed on its head simply because Mordechai saw the potential for a difference. He did not just accept that the Xera was going to be the Xera. He comes to Esther and he says to her, you can change the reality. I don't know why. We don't know. We're not, we're not, however much we think we're Adam 1, however much we think we know everything, we don't. We're limited. We're Adam too. We've created from the dust of the earth. We don't know everything, but what we know is that we have it in our control to change some things, to change some realities, to change. And if we can't change our reality, to change the way we see our reality. That's what we have the control to do. And here, God is teaching um, Kayan the most profound lesson. And that is the lesson 
of making good, of seeing positive, of seeing something good in a reality that is not what I would have wanted it to be. And by the way, I say this like, oh, it's an easy thing to do. The reason why it takes the divine to come and give Kai in this message, the reason why Hashem comes and clothes Adam afterwards in the gift of skin, of dignity, of, maj of majesty, of light, is because it is the hardest thing that humanity is asked to do. It's precisely this exact thing, this paradigm shift, this seeing reality differently, that is the hardest thing to do, but it's also the beginning of the tshuva process. It's the beginning because only when we reframe our reality do we see ourselves differently, do we see others differently, do we see the world differently. I want to keep all of that in our heads and I want to once more go back to Rav Soloveitchik. And this time I want to look very briefly at another essay called Majesty and Humility. And in that essay, Rav Soloveitchik talks about, again, two typologies, two types. He speaks about majestic man and humble man. Very similarly, he wrote this essay before Lonely Man of Faith, and many people say that this, this was the precursor to Lonely Man of Faith, because here he says something very similar, but sounds similar to Adam 1 and Adam 2. But when I read what he wrote here, I thought he could have been writing to us today. Um, and I think especially for people, especially all of you living in Italy at the moment, who have unfortunately and tragically lost loved ones, I think it, just to read this, it gives us a sense of where Rav Soloveitchik stood in terms of suffering and how we have the ability, even in our suffering, to be able to tap in to some kind of divine communication. And he says like this in source number four, as a rule in times of joy and elation, one finds God's footsteps in the majesty and grandeur of the cosmos, in its vastness and its stupendous dynamics. When man is drunk with life, when he feels that living is a dignified affair, then man beholds God in infinity. In moments of ecstasy, God addresses himself to man through the twinkling stars and the roar of the endlessly distant heavens. Okay, that's majesty. That's when we're, everything's great. We see God, we see in the cosmos, we can relate to him. But the second part, suffering and distress in contradistinction to pain is not a sensation, but an experience, a spiritual reality known only to humans. Okay, he says here that animals don't suffer. He doesn't mean that suffering in the, in the physical sense. He means it in the existential sense, in the psychological sense. That's what he means. This spiritual reality is encountered by man whenever he stands to lose either his sense of existential security and he says here, in the case of an incurable disease or his existential dignity, as in the case of public humiliation, whenever a merciless reality clashes with human existential awareness, man suffers and finds himself in distress. However, with the arrival of the dark night of the soul in moments of agony and black despair, when living becomes ugly and absurd, plainly nauseating, where man loses his sense of beauty and majesty, God addresses him, not from the infinity, but from the infinitesimal, not from the vast stretches of the universe, but from a single spot in the darkness which surrounds suffering, man from within the black despair itself. It's not just from the depths that we cry out to God, but it's from the depths that God cries out to us, that there is a mutual meeting point in those depths of despair, in those moments of of, of suffering where we meet God. And I want to tie this all in together and I want to move now to the women of the Exodus. I want to ask the question, we've spoken about certainty and uncertainty, knowing and not knowing as being the fundamental drives in the human being. We've spoken about the idea that perhaps one of the main messages that we find in the Torah, and I really believe this, is, is to be live with vulnerability and yet still act 
for God still act with responsibility and take responsibility and act in a responsible way. Perhaps that's one of our greatest messages. How are we able to do that even in the depths of despair? And I want to suggest that that exact paradigm is the women in the book of Shemot. The women in the book of Shemot maintain or retain an element of majesty. They still grasp onto what Rav Soloveitchik is talking about, the Adam one, the majesty, the responsible human being. Not only that, perhaps they learn the message that Hashem tells Kayan, and perhaps they lo look at Adam HaRishon as an example of somebody who looks at reality and is able to see something different, is able, and by the way, I'm not turning around and saying, God, I, I really don't believe in saying that evil doesn't exist and suffering doesn't exist and it's all a, a veil. I'm totally against that. I believe that we have to be attuned to the reality in which we live. Today, we are living in immensely uncertain times and we need to be attuned to the feelings that we are feeling, the despair, the uncertainty, the the upheaval, the sense of, 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 of the step, all the things that we're going through, they're all there, they're all real. But the biggest question is, do I accept my reality as is and allow it to overwhelm me, or am I able somehow to paradigm shift? The women of the book of Schmott were the queens in paradigm shifting. And I wanted to argue that that is the reason Rabbi Akiva, and we're going to come back to Rabbi Akiva, and why specifically Rabbi Akiva says this. But if you look in source number five, Rabbi Akiva is the one that says, nashim In the merits of the righteous women that were in that generation, the people of Israel were redeemed from Egypt. What does Rabbi Akiva mean? He here is talking specifically about the women that we see in chapters one and two of Sefer Shemot, Sh uh, um, Shifra and Pua and um, Bakara and Miriam and Yocheved. These are the women who, while immersed in absolute despairing times, when everyone, when the children were being thrown into the river and everything was upside down, exactly at that moment, they took the, they, they created a reality in which they saw the given, they saw the suffering, they saw the reality of what they had in front of them, and yet they were able somehow to shift paradigm. Somehow they were able to see something different. I didn't bring from you the text from the Torah itself in Sefer Shmok, but I really, um, I really encourage you to look at the text itself because what you're going to see is if you look at chapter two, especially one, one of the words that keeps repeating itself again and again and again is the root terer, to see, tafresh aleph, to see. Again and again and again it repeats itself. Why? Because the women in Sefer Shemot have the ability to see the world differently. They listened to Hashem's message to Kayin. They heard what our call, what God's call to humanity is. And the call is to imtetev se'et. If you can make good of this, you will elevate yourself and you will elevate others. Yochevet, of Yochevet, it says, v'terato kitovhu. She saw that Moshe was good, that the baby was good. What does that even mean? She saw the baby was good. She saw that the baby was going to make good of this situation. She understood that somewhere in that, and Rashi comes along and says he brought light to the house, which I think is so beautiful. The ability to see something different than it is. And where do we see this the most? We see this the most in a very, very uh, famous Midrash of the mirrors. I want you to look at source number six. Source number six comes from the building of the Mishkan. The only thing in the Mishkan that was not burnt down and, and, and made into something else, the only thing that remained exactly as it was given were the mirrors um, that were put on the side of the altar. Okay, the mirrors of the serving women that were at the tent of the meeting and they were used to create the um, sinks where the Levian washed their hands. And Rashi comes along and he says, what, what were these mirrors? 
בנות ישראל, סוס נ"ס שהיו בידם מראות שראו בהן כשהן מתקשטות, ואף אותן לא אכלו מלהביא לנזיבות המשכן. רש"י קאמס לונג, הוא אומר, they would bring, they bought these mirrors in which they adorn themselves, okay? And here he quotes a midrash, and I want to read the midrash with you in full. Here he quotes a midrash, and I want to begin with the second part of the midrash. In the second part of the midrash, if you look in source number eight, look at the English, in source number eight, the second paragraph of the English, says like this, when God told Moshe to make the tabernacle, the whole people stood up and offered whatever they had, silver, gold, copper, Everyone eagerly offered their treasures. The women said, what have we to offer as a gift to the tabernacle? And they brought the mirrors to Moshe. When Moshe saw these mirrors, what did he was furious? He said to the Israelites, take sticks and break their thighs. What do they need these mirrors for? Then God said to Moshe, Moshe, these you despise? These are the mirrors that raised up the host that came out of Egypt. Meaning these are the mirrors that allowed the people to come out with many, 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 many children. Take them and make a copy of you with them. Stand for the priests to sanctify them. As it said, and he made a U of copper and the stands of copper and the mirrors of those who created hosts. Again, we're seeing something fascinating here. Moshe looks at the mirrors and what does he see? He sees the given reality. Okay? What's the given reality? The given reality is that mirrors were used for vanity. Mirrors were used by the women to be vain, to beautify themselves. And Hashem turns around in the Midrash, yeah? It's so profoundly and says to Moshe, you know what? You can learn one or two things about from these women. I want you to shift, to reimagine, to, to look again and see what these mirrors were used for. Now I want to go to the beginning of the Midrash. Look at the beginning. Um, these are the records of the tabernacle. You find when Israel was in harsh labor in Egypt, Paro decreed against them that they should not sleep or not have relations with their wives. Said Rabbi Shimon Bar what did the daughters of Israel do? They would go down to draw water from the river and God would prepare for them little fish in their buckets and they would sell them and cook them and buy wine with the proceeds and go to the field and feed their husbands, as it is said, in all the labor in the field. And when they had eaten and drunk, the women would take the mirrors and look at, into them with their husbands. And she would say, I'm more coming than you. And she would say, I'm coming with you. And as a result, they would accustom themselves to desire and they were fruitful and multiplied and God took note of them immediately. Hashem Pakadbehem. God took note of them. What's the Midrash telling us here? Well, firstly, there's lots of imagery, which we don't have time to go into. But one of the things the Midrash is telling us here is that why are these mirrors, what were they used for? These mirrors were used in order for the women to be able to materialize their ideology. What do I mean by that? What's the women's ideology here? What are the women doing? The women are turning around and following the footsteps of Miriam and Yocheva and all the other women, they are turning around and they're saying, our given reality, the suffering and the tragedy and the pain and everything that we're going through, we don't know when it's going to end. We don't know when we're going to come out of this. But one thing we know, we need to choose life. Exactly like Adam HaRishon turned around and said to Chava, Ki em kol chai. In the reality that God has thrown at us, in this absolute terrible circumstance that God has given us a new reality and choosing life. And here the women do exactly the same thing. They look at the reality and they say, let's see it differently. Let's go down to our husbands. Let's show them a different reality. Let's ensure that even in the midst of death, even in the midst of plague, even in the midst of the worst possible reality we can imagine, we are choosing life. That's what the women do. And they do it using the mirrors. Why mirrors? Why does the Midrash here bring the mirrors? And I want to suggest that a mirror turns everything upside down. It's, it's the nafot, right? It's the reimagining. A mirror is... Uh, there's a beautiful, so many, so many writers and poets talk about mirrors as the idea of opening up possibilities. That's what the mirror rep represents, right? The idea, the idea of being able to open up endless possibility. But more than that, the mirror is the moment in which 
you know, if we think about us as human beings, and it's, it's actually amazing, there's um, a, a, a very famous French psychologist, Lacan, he speaks about the idea, and Viva Zornberg talks about this in her book as well, he speaks about the idea that the infant recognizes himself, the moment that the infant recognizes himself in the mirror, is the moment where he becomes, he, it's a phrase that they use, the fragmented body becomes, uh, it transforms into the orthopedic totality, meaning it's the moment where the child recognizes that he's no longer made up of just parts, because that's all he's seen until now of himself, but there's a, there's a whole totality of being, right? There's a whole totality of being. And if we think about it on a very basic level, we have never seen our full selves except for in a mirror, okay? There's no other time we've seen our full selves. What the women do by hanging up the mirror in front of the men is two things. Number one, they say to them, there's always another possibility of seeing reality. Reality can always be seen in a different way. And the second thing they turn around to them and said is, this is just one part. There's a bigger picture. And even if it takes a month or three months or six months or six years or 60 years, this will end. There is a bigger picture here. It's not just, we are just one part of it. There are things, and to go back to the ideas we brought out at the beginning, there are things that are known and unknown. There are things that are certain and uncertain. That's part of living as a human being. And part of living as a human being means that sometimes we are forced to embrace our vulnerability. We are forced to embrace a situation whereby we have no choice over the given reality, but yet we can hang the mirror up in front. We can look and say there are other possibilities and ways of seeing our reality, and we can choose life in whatever fashion and whatever form that means. And today, more than ever, we actually have real true ability to choose life which basically means to isolate to stay indoors not to put ourselves or anyone else at risk that's the way in which today we can do exactly what adam does and exactly what god encourages kind to do and exactly what the women in sefesh do. we can choose life i want to also talk for a minute about Pesach because I know for Cherry this was very important to, to, to speak about and I, and I think it's important for a lot of us. Many people may not have ever made Pesach before. Many of us have never even made Seder before. I mean I have plenty of times but I know there's many people that haven't and I think this is a massive challenge as we come to Pesach to think for ourselves we now have faced a new reality and to paradigm shift to say, okay, it's not ideal. Nothing about this situation is ideal. Nothing is what we would have chosen. This is not a given reality that we want. And yet we have to find the strength within ourselves to see differently. In if you see good, if you choose good, if you're able to make good, you'll be lifted. Somehow out of it all, we might maybe find some meaningful moment in it. And that's going to be our moment of elevation. That will be the moment in which we will move from being the humble to the majestic, from being Adam two to Adam one. And those are the moments that will give us meaning to go to the next moment and the next moment. Seder is not going to be maybe what it always was going to be. We're not going to be with extended family. We're not going to be able to celebrate it in exactly the way we want to. That's for sure. And it requires all of us to make that paradigm shift and somebody who made that paradigm shift is exactly the person who said that in the merit of the righteous women we were exiled from Egypt. Rabbi Kiva is the prototype of paradigm shifting in every sense of the word. He is the person who at the age of 40 decided he was going to go back and learn. He knew, he saw he recognized that his given reality is always changing and can always be changed. And I want to share with you the most beautiful Gemara, which I'm sure many of you know already, in source number 10. 
Another time, the sages were coming to Jerusalem together, and when they reached Mount Scopus, they rent their garments. This was after the destruction of the temple. When they got to the temple mount and a fox emerged from the Holy of Holies, they began to weep. But Rabbi Akiva laughed. Why, they asked, are you laughing? He replied, why are you weeping? They, the place which scripture says the common man shall draw a knife, shall be put to death, is now become the haunt of foxes. Shall we not weep? He said to them. For that very reason, I'm laughing. For it is written, I call my witness to the other priests and Zachariah, the son of um, Yerevichiah. What now connection is there between Uriah and Zachariah? Did not Uriah live during the time of the first temple and Zachariah during the second? Still, scripture links the later prophecy of Zachariah with the earlier prophecy of Uriah. In the earlier prophecy, in the days of Uriah, it's written, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruin, and the temple mount a shrine in the woods. And in Zacharias return, thus said the Lord of hosts, who shall yet old men and women sit together in the four places of Yerushalayim. Says Rabbi Akiva, so long as Uriah's dire prophecy had not yet been fulfilled, I feared that Zacharias' prophecy wouldn't. And now that Uriah's prophecy has been fulfilled, I'm quite certain that Zacharias will be too. And they said to him, Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. Rabbi Akiva is the paradigm of paradigm shifting. He is the person who is able to look at the given reality and see something different. Not to deny the suffering, not to deny the pain, not to deny the disappointment, but to rather say, let's embrace the vulnerable moment that we are in and let's reframe the way in which we look at reality. I want to finish with two sources. One is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and one is someone called Edith Egger. I'll talk about Edith Egan in a second. Let me, just big, let me just read Jonathan Sachs. He writes in Radical Now, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He writes in Radical Then, Radical Now, in source number 11. With this, we arrive at the starting point of Jewish faith. Radical Then, Radical Now. Perhaps still not fully understood. Faith is born not in the answer, but in the question. Not in the harmony, but in the dissonance. If God created the world, then he created man. Why then does he allow man to destroy the world? How are we to reconcile the order of nature with the disorder of society? Can God have made the world only to abandon it? Jesus begins not in wonder that the world is, but in a protest that the world is not as it ought to be. It is in that cry, that sacred discontent, that Abraham's journey begins. At the heart of reality and the contradiction between order and chaos, the order of creation, the chaos we create. There is no resolution at the level of thought. It can only be resolved at the level of action, only by making the world other than it is. I, I apologize. I don't think it was exactly the source I wanted to bring for you. Apologies. But it's still a very good source because what we see is that what, uh, what Rabbi Sachs is saying is that very often when we look at our reality, Okay, we see something other than we want it to be. And really the responsibility to change that reality is on us. And whether or not we can or we can't, we always can. Whether it's on a literal level or even on the level in which we view our reality. And a person who really had this capacity was someone called Edith Egger in her book, The Choice, which I highly recommend. Edith Egger was a Holocaust survivor. And she was also, um, she also learned from Viktor Frankl. She was a student of Viktor Frankl's. And she, after the Holocaust, she, in the first third of the book, she talks about her Holocaust experience. Because most, most of the book is about her cathartic journey after. What, how she learns to cope with her given reality. And she writes as follows, today more than 70 years apart, what happened can never be forgotten and can never be changed. But over time, I learned that I can choose how to respond to the past. I can be miserable, or I can be hopeful, I can be depressed, or I can be happy. We always have that choice, that opportunity for control. Okay? And I remind you of what Hashem says to Kayin, Va'ata Timshol Bo. You have the ability to rule, control, to reign over it, to reign over your own reality. And she says, I'm here, this is now. I've learned to tell myself over and over until the panicky feeling begins to ease. Our painful experiences aren't a liability, they're a gift. They give us perspective and meaning, an opportunity to find our unique purpose and strength. We can't choose to vanish the dark, but we can choose to kindle 
the light. And I really, really believe that is exactly what the women in the book of Exodus, exactly what Adam teaches us, what the women in the book of Exodus teach us, and many, many other examples in the Torah of where people look at their reality and they say, I can't necessarily change my reality at this particular moment, but I can choose to light a match. I can choose to light a candle. I can choose to reframe the way in which I see my reality. And it doesn't dispel and it doesn't um, denigrate those terrible, painful experiences we've been through and the pain that we face and the trauma that we face, but it allows us to embrace our Adam two sides of ourselves, the vulnerable side, the side that asks the why question, not the how, the side that recognizes that for all Adam one's achievements, and they are great Adam one's achievements, they've made us be able to do this, to be on Zoom, a hundred people learning Torah, while stuck in our houses. Adam one's achievements are great. But if Adam one doesn't recognize the Adam two part in himself, if he isn't able to tap into the vulnerability, to the humility, to the moment where I say I don't know everything and uncertainty can also be my friend and from that grow and shift and change and see reality differently, if he's able to do that, then surely he'll be elevated exactly as Hashem says to Kayin. So with that, I thank you all so much for being part of this amazing initiative that Cherry started. And I invite you all to continue thinking about these ideas. You can find, I think Cherry sent down, if you want to get in touch with me, you go onto my blog and send me an email. I'm more than happy to, to email with people if they have any questions. I know that Cherry wanted me to leave time for some questions at the end. Now, I'm not sure how we're going to do this, but I guess we'll just do it that if someone wants to speak, just unmute yourself and you can ask a question. Is there anyone that wants to ask anything? Any questions? Uh, Tanya, I just wanted to thank yes. you very much. Um, uh, for an incredibly interesting shiur and um, and for giving us some insight and courage to paradigm shift as we head towards on Rosh Chodesh Nisan as we head towards um, a Pesach that's definitely going to be very different to any other Pesach we've we've encountered to now and uh, we still have the courage to go forward and ahead and uh thank you for giving us so much insight tonight thank you amen thank you so much if anyone else has a question now please speak and if not i'm gonna end the meeting sorry did someone want to speak just to thank you for a very comforting sheila thank you all so much for tapping in i really appreciate it and I can see Malka Bean is on this. I'd like to thank her as well for facilitating and being able for all of us to be here. And I can't, I've got like five screens here, so I can't see everyone that's on here. But again, thank you to Matan, to Malka, to Oshra, and again to Cherry for allowing this amazing, amazing, uh, I guess, meeting of all of us together. And I wish you all a Chag Pesach Kasher and more importantly, Sameach. Let's try and make it the best that we can and um, wishing you all only health and only good things. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.